Hello and welcome to the Farm Jacket podcast, which is all about talking to lovely, kind, interesting people who've gone through all kinds of stuff in their lives and uh, I think are living their lives pretty well and we can learn stuff from it, but certainly imperfect. I think that's very important. Uh, The Farm Jacket podcast is uh, related to mental health in a subtle way, in talking to each other and sharing our issues. Uh, Farm Jacket is allied to mind. We give money to them. And so it's important for us to do that. And also, it's just good fun listening to interesting people. If you want to go to farmjacket.com, you will find lovely jackets. So this week we have Henry Jeffries, who is a wine and booze writer. I used to work with him. He's a very funny and sweet and kind man. Now, a bit of context for once uh, before this is after we'd finished the podcast, which is a really good, fun, sort of boozy chat um, uh, and doesn't really get that hardcore. Um, I found out that he'd had testicular cancer and I checked with him and he was fine with me mentioning this. It just didn't come up. And I think it really strikes me talking to all these people that everyone has crosses to bear. Everyone's through been some really heavy shit. I'm sure you have, I have, everyone does, but you don't see it on the outside. And one of the dangers in today's digital society is that you don't think that people have to have these awful things that happen to them, you know, that it's only you. And it's not true. Everyone is going through shit. Don't worry, you're not alone. You don't want them to go through that shit, but you're not alone. And with that context in mind, you'll now hear Henry just being funny and chilled. He's got over that. He's moved on. It's fine. At the time, it was awful. And I think that's a really good lesson for us. Let's enjoy Henry banging on about drinking stuff. Ask me how Somerset was again. How's Somerset? Mm. (laughs) Um, I love Somerset very much. Um, And I'm very glad I left uh, London. Although I have spent... this weekend staying in London to do various stuff including podcasting yourself with Peter Walker yesterday and um, I quite like London because it's very vibrant it is the cliche that it's lots of very interesting people and Bath is full of lovely people but everyone's quite similar to each other they're very white and friendly and sort of liberal and in a sort of small L way and um, that's great. That's a really lovely place to live, but it's not that stimulating all the time. So, and obviously, I lived in London for 20 years, so um, I do sort of miss it now, which I didn't until recently at all. Very glad to get out, but it was probably sort of bounced back from leaving and a sort of post rationalisation of I hate London, so I'm going to feel really good about moving to Somerset. And now it's sort of levelled off. That was a long answer. Yeah. <laughs> Um, hello, Henry Jeffers. Hello, Nick. How are you? Um, I am very well. So I never prepare people for this because I enjoy people's slight discomfort with it. Is I always ask people, as you would in a pub, um, what you're having and how you're doing. What am I having? I am having a Spitfire, which is a Kentish beer, which is in excellent condition. So I'm really, really pleased about that. And doing, I'm actually very well. Yeah, I'm feeling sort of healthy and happy and generally very pleased with the world. <laughs> Not <laughs> yourself. I was going to say pleased with myself, but that would, that would be ridiculous. Uh, ridiculous. Um, and what, what should happen, I forgot to ask Peter to do this yesterday, was um, you should ask me the same. Okay. What are you having? I am having a Dara gluten-free beer, which regular listen, listeners will know is my tipple of choice um, because I have a funny tummy. Um, and How are you I'm, doing? I'm doing... I'm, I'm always, I always overshare this, but that's part of the podcast is to be honest about how you're doing. I'm very tired. Um, I've just launched 
like launch number 58 of From. It's been in various stages, but the proper launch this week, and I've been doing loads and loads of meetings and PR and all that kind of rubbish, and so I'm quite tired. So I've gone away to London, and it's actually a bit of a rest because I'm just sort of on my own uh, at night rather than having children sort of bothering me, and, uh, and that's like a rest, and so I can sort of absorb everything that's gone on. I'm excited to hear whether that cocktail shaker comes out in the background. Yeah, yeah, no, it's very apt, isn't it? <laughs> um, so, could you describe where we are right now? We are in Boysdale, which is a sort of themed Scottish pub in Mayfair. They have a few branches. Oh, is it Scottish? Well, they've got the tartan carpets. I suppose, yeah. And, but there's a sort of jazz Scottish theme. Yeah, that would throw me a bit. Caledonian jazz. <laughs> so there's kind of, there's deer on the walls and there's... Um, tartan and stuff, but there's also pictures of Ella Fitzgerald all over the place. And they do very nice range of whiskies, cigars. It's a sort of it's a sort of old man's place, but aware of its old manliness. Yeah, I really like uh, it. And it, and it, and it. And it's quite jolly. And they do a very good magazine called Boysdale Life, which you write, which I write for. Yeah. So um, I'm very, I'm very fond of them, and they've, they've been very um, sweet and supportive to me as a struggling writer because they pay me in drink and food. <laughs> this is why we're here. I yeah. believe yeah. Um, that we're actually drinking their booze. These are my words. You're drinking my words. Oh, how delicious. Um, so, basically, we are sat in the poshest, most expensive bit of Mayfair, and what I think is a very friendly, sort of nice, relaxed, boozy place. It is, yeah, yeah. It, it feels very un-Mayfair. I think that's what's nice about these places, is they are, you know, they're in expensive parts of London, but they're not stuffy. Right. So, um, having the last two podcasts have not been in pubs, we're sort of in a pub. I wouldn't call it a pub. It's a, it's a bar or a speakeasy. I would feel that this part feels feels quite pubby to me because they've got beer yeah. on a hand pump. It's easygoing. Yeah, I like it. But it's all painted red yeah. and it's, it's sort of, it's a posh Mayfair pub. Um, I think we've defined that enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you are, well, I'll, I'll start with how I know you. So, uh, you used to work with me as the assistant manager of an Odbins wine merchants in Portobello in West London. Um, we were both in our 20s. I think I was about 27 and you were straight out of uni, um, 21. Looking back, I just can't believe that we were just talking about this working, running a shop, uh, which was pretty full on at the time. Uh, you know, when we basically knew nothing. And those, those days where on Friday they would deliver the wine and you had to be there at seven o'clock in the morning. And sometimes you would have to work from seven in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. Then you'd have to kind of clear up so you wouldn't be out. So I can't even work out how long that is. What's that, a 15 hour day or something? 15, 16 hour day. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and then you'd have to be there at 10 in the morning to open the next day. Oh, Jesus. And they paid, they paid me something like 12,000 £12, pounds a year. Yeah. to do that I, I, as, an, as a manager like I was in one of the managers top five managers in the country by revenue I think I got paid 16 grand a year however we did get a lot of alcohol to drink we did drink an awful lot I don't know if we got a lot of alcohol well, to drink but a lot of alcohol somehow alcohol seemed to end up in our tummies yeah uh, which considering that I'm infamously haven't mentioned it in podcasts before not really a drinker I think I probably drank more at Obbins than I did at university um, because it was a bit it was almost like a sort of, is it indentured slavery, where they just sort of keep you there by That's paying exactly you booze. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I used to have a little, I was very skinny, but I had a little sort of pot belly from the amount of booze that I, I drank, which, considering I 
have very low tolerance to booze. I've had half a beer so far and I'm feeling a little bit wobbly. Um, I just can't believe, really. There were lots of alcoholics in our bins. They're nice alcoholics. Yeah, they were. They're also the, you had the, the thing that you, you, you get at Waterstones, where you have these people who are sort of overeducated, extremely clever, but lack... Or perhaps they don't know. They lack ambition. Right. So their friends will have gone which, into which the city. Okay. Or which just you know, very educated, very nice people. Which is fine as long as it doesn't make you bitter. And I think right. it made some. Some of them were, were great, and they were just very jolly, and they ran their shops, and it was all they ever wanted to do. They talked about wine, they drank wine, they got wine at a discount. And then some people, or Watson's books. But then some of them were a bit bitter because they were on sixteen grand a year, working fifteen-hour shifts, and drinking yeah. too much. And 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 it was the sort of company that I think. You can only work in for a few years before either you leave the shop and become yeah. a buyer, and, then, and I think that's a very enviable job, or you have to go and do something else. So I, I joined because I had a history of working in bars, clubs and restaurants, and ironically I just found that um, the hours were terrible and the pay was terrible, so I upgraded myself to the horror of, of bins. Uh, but also I loved the people and the culture, and... It was fascinating learning about wine, and what I really liked was the unpretentious nature of Hobbins. Is it really? It felt a, a genuinely Hobbins wanted to educate everyone about lovely wines and things that could be accessible. It wasn't about Bordeaux and Bourgogne Rouge, and you know, no one wore red trousers today. There was no tweed. It was all <laughs> red trousers. Um, yeah, so you, you, I think you were probably the poshest person I've ever met in Hobbins, actually. Yeah, yeah, no, I probably was because it was it was very much not a middle-class company. Right, lots of... Well, I suppose middle but it wasn't public school. There were very few public... And if they were public school, they, they disguised it. It's interesting, because you, you didn't sort of bristle when I said posh. Do you think of yourself as posh? You sound posh. Yeah, I think I sound a lot posher than I actually am. Right. I'm... Well, if you're willing to earn, earn 12 grand a year, you're probably not that posh. Yeah, well, exactly. If you're... And you need to earn that money, then you're clearly not that posh. Right. I, I think, went to posh schools but I was definitely, my father would pick me up in a Ford Sierra estate rather than top of the range at Aston Martin. So does your, do your posh voice credentials come from your school? I think it comes from the school. Right. Also my, my parents as well, they went to good schools despite themselves not being particularly wealthy. So so I've come onto class and I think I've realised I've got a bit older. Maybe I always was that I've got a little bit of a chip on my shoulder and it's almost because I've realised that actually I was probably sort of working class. So my mum always called it the creative poor right. um, my mum was a photographer and so uh, you know we used to struggle a bit but it wasn't that bad but um, I I realised that I didn't I never ever encountered posh people upper middle class or upper class people and so I get a bit intimidated by them not by you Henry because you're lovely I'm not very and you're also you're not that posh so what was You've very, that. what was very interesting actually <laughs> in, in the years after I worked at Oddbooks is that I sort of learnt a bit more about my family and the fact that they were not particularly English or British. I always assumed that my grandparents were sort of as English as they'd come. My grandfather used to wear tweed and play golf and right. plus fours. But his family were called Jaffe and they changed it to Jeffreys in the 20s to make it sound less Jewish. And they were all okay. from Poland, and they'd right. come over in the 1890s, just so they didn't get killed by the Tsarist Cossacks. Polish Jews, which side were Polish Jews? That must have been, are you a quarter or an eighth Polish Jewish? Half. Right, okay. And um, 
they sort of were kind of uber assimilators. So they started in Bethnal Green, you know, working in the ghetto, and then yeah. they moved out to Ealing. And so I sort of money veneer of posh Englishness is, is, is just that. It's a veneer. It's something that my... But nobody was... Nobody is born posh. You have to be created posh or or rough and tumble or whatever it is. It's, it's funny because I was thinking about this a lot when I was walking through Mayfair. So I was walking back past the American Embassy, which is now empty. And I find that fascinating because that that real estate is insanely uh, expensive and whatever they're going to do with it I don't know is something ludicrously otherworldly but I would just this whole area you know there's there's 23 year olds gunning Bentleys um, for 50 metres and then hitting traffic lights and you know just various sort of dicky behaviour but I, I love one of the things I love about London is sort of the people watching so I was in Peckham earlier and that, that was very obviously very different from here and I, I, I just really occurred to me something I always think about which is that I've never really been intim- I don't tend to get intimidated by many people I'm usually intimidated by talent um, rather than status is that why you don't find me intimidating? <laughs> Touche. Um, although I feel like I should go, no, no, I do find you intimidating because you're so talented. Um, but I feel like I'm digging now. No, 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 no. I, I, I want to hear where you're going. You're very talented, that's yeah. what I'm talking I wouldn't talk to you otherwise. Um, but uh, no, it, it's, you've got all these rich people in these amazing houses, all these things that everyone wants. But they still go for a poo, and they still get cancer, and they're still going to die. And, and so. I just find that the things that I used to desperately want when I was younger, I don't now. I might be again post-rationalising because I don't have that money and I never will. Or it might simply be that I've let go of those ambitions for those insanely amazing things that I probably used to chase. Because Mayfair can be pretty intimidating. Yeah, I mean, I don't spend very much time in Mayfair and I do find it quite peculiar you just have all these shops and, 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 and restaurants selling things that I couldn't possibly afford. But for me, it's just a bit alien. I don't, it doesn't make me angry or it doesn't make me feel intimidated. You just, I just think I'm not going in there because I can't afford anything. Yeah. But I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm very happy as a middle class person. How do you define, define yourself? Uh, in, as a, if somebody said to you, somebody, Anyone to say, define yourself. What are you? I I would describe myself as a writer. I I don't think I would describe myself in any kind of class, though I am clearly, clearly, clearly. But I was wondering whether you describe yourself as a. Right, you're a writer. Okay. Uh, I would define myself as a a father and entrepreneur, but. I'm, I'm trying to get away from the entrepreneur idea because entrepreneurs generally smash themselves in for a, you know, a very difficult to grab sort of cause. And I think I'm much more of a small business person now. Um, so anyway, so you are a writer. You write for Boysdale. I write for Boysdale. Telegraph, I Guardian, BBC Food. BBC Good Food. You write for the Spectator. The oldie. Really? I thought, I, thought this, I thought this was an open-minded podcast. I, uh, I'm joking. Yeah. So I had this joke with uh, Peter Walk yesterday, you know, about um, being left of century, thinks I'm a nice person. Of course, if you're right of century, you can't be. Yeah. Which was a deliberate incendiary remark, because the whole point is exactly as you say. 
because it's open-minded. And something I, I want to do, actually, is to interview all kinds of different people from different backgrounds and try and make that as wide as possible um, and, and to actually move beyond the people I know and my friends because generally the people you know are the people who are like you and I think that's not necessarily a good idea. Um, so I, I just think that the spectator writes some, or publishes some, some dodgy stuff, not yours, clearly. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I, th- I think the, the, the Guardian sometimes publishes some, some oh, yeah, dodgy the, stuff. The Guardian well. can be really um, can be self parody a lot of the time. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and, I, and I sort of I, mean, I love the Guardian. I used to write a lot for the Guardian. I had a, a weekly column in the Guardian, and I think it, when it's the sort of serious Manchester Guardian, Guardian, it's very good. And when it's trying to do sort of clickbait sensationalist is HP source racist kind of stuff. Yeah. Then it then it's it's a joke. So yeah. I, and I feel and then a lot of publications do that as well. Is HP source racist? Oh. <laughs> um, but that could have been the article, couldn't it? <laughs> no. Is it? No. But the, it's always those clickbait articles are always a question yeah. is this the most incendiary thing we've ever seen in human history yeah. did, the Martians, did the Martians build the pyramids <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> anyway see ya um, and that's the thing about clickbait so something I've been talking about with Fram is trying not to have marketing that is sort of clickbait there's no real point in having clickbait if you're selling stuff online because what people do is they have a look at your website and go well that's bollocks and they just leave and it's just pointless exercise it's not the same as media for instance where those clicks through can gain you revenue just by clicking but so you have to build something that actually has some content and some meat on the bone but you do see that and for instance the Guardian they do Sometimes they, you could, they're clearly, I think they're, it's quite angst ridden, and they just go, Oh God, we've really got to get traffic, or we're going to go bust, so we're just going to have to write this ludicrously lefty thing. But then I also know people who are offended by almost everything, which I think is obviously something we talk about a lot these days about everyone being offended. The problem is that that offensive being offended it gets mixed up is you're right to be offended about homophobia and sexism but you're not right to be offended about HP source being racist or not. so yes they're exactly. divisible there's obviously shades um do people get offended about booze um well actually people get offended by the word booze do they but yeah in, in, in um Chances Robinson top white writer who I get on quite well with doesn't like the word booze and she's actually sort of written about my blog and said, I don't know why he calls it World of Booze. What's her problem? I think she thinks it's sort of down market or... Um, Is that snobbery? Probably, yeah. Uh, or, or for Americans, it has... Americans don't like the word, particularly don't like the word. They think it's sort of... They think of people in the gutter. Right. Like, you know, brown right. paper bag. Yeah. As yeah. though... Which I don't think in England it does. I think it's just a sort of slightly jocular yeah. word for alcohol. And I think it's a good word because it covers all of them. Yeah. So you don't have to say... A pint of Spitfire. Yeah. Or a beautiful or, burgundy. Exactly. Or, or, or a single malt. Um, and it means you don't have to say alcoholic drinks, which is a slightly clumsy phrase. So I'm, I'm very... Do people get... But So people do get offended by booze, even just the word. Um... But yeah, I think some people think that if you're writing in a positive way about alcohol, that is bad. That is, you know, you just, you shouldn't do that. Even some people in the drinks business, they think that if you ever say, well, actually, yes, alcoholism, liver damage, and all this stuff, but think of the fun and think of, or, or even the fact that any amounts of alcohol have been shown to be good for heart disease, that sort of thing. 
they get very angry if you, if you say that. They say, no, we shouldn't be saying good stuff about drink. So it's a, yeah, it's a contentious area. <laughs> it's, it's, um, so I think there's this, sometimes this inability to find a sort of sensible middle view, which is, I, I think most people see the sensible middle view is booze isn't heartful if you don't drink too much of it. Yeah. Um, so I, my father was an alcoholic, um, and so I have quite a sort of unpleasant, extreme view of one side of alcohol. But the other side, I spent many, many years working, selling alcohol to people and seen how much fun, you know, people have. Although I did work in a club in Manchester where people didn't really drink alcohol. There was some other kind of fun that they yeah, were Yeah, was that the one where, where the, sort of the gangsters came in at some point? Yeah, that we the... have to be careful how much we talk about that. Oh, OK. Well, look, we won't talk about the gangsters. <laughs> <then. laughs> well, yes. In case that... they find you. <laughs> I think they're literally all dead now. Yeah, they probably mm. are. Because yeah. uh, I checked. But um, he says, blushing. But, uh, no, I've, I, I can remember... So I think... I've got this real problem. I'm really tempted to give up drinking because I think that... So having, so I had a bit of a, a mental breakdown last year, quite a lot of a mental breakdown. And one of the things you do is you just try and fritter away all the things that are causing you damage. And one of those was alcohol, I discovered. I just felt much, much better not drinking at the time. And, and what I discovered is I just did it to just try and incrementally improve my mental health. And actually what I did was it just improved everything. I lost a load of weight and all this stuff. But the thing is, I really like booze. Yeah. So, and I love, I've learned all this stuff about wine. So I was saying to you earlier, because of my inability to produce these enzymes, I can't drink red wine anymore. And uh, that makes me sad because I know quite a bit, not nearly as much as you, but a fair bit about red wine. You know, when we worked at Hopkins, you get taught that stuff, you learn it. it try, I must have tried three or 4,000 different red wines so you get a decent broad knowledge and it's a shame to lose that um so so to my I, i'm sort of agnostic about booze i think like most people if you want to drink that's fine just don't be a dick about it i guess yeah yeah and i think i you know i'm pretty keen on on, on drink and i'm aware that it does have this sort of power and it's something that you don't you know, you don't you don't fuck about with. You know, you, if you think you're drinking too much, then you you cut down. And I have, I don't actually don't I don't actually have alcoholism in my direct family, but I've known people who are alcoholics. I've known people who have drunk themselves to death, and that that frightens me. And there have been times when I do find myself drinking too much, and then so I so I'm so I discipline myself. Mm. So I say don't drink on Mondays and Tuesdays. You know, after a certain time, don't you know? So I have to because I, I do really enjoy it. Yeah. But you just think, you know, it's like having a fast car or something. You know, it's great fun or having any kind of car. Right. Fun, but got to be careful. Don't drive it 120 miles an hour in the fog. Whilst drunk. <laughs> Whilst drunk. <laughs> um, so, so just to just to dip down into the into the depths again is I can remember. The, the moment I started really doubting my career in booze, which is a fair while before I left Dobbins, was um, when uh, I was working at the Fenchurch Street branch when I just moved to London. And I noticed a woman coming in, and she would come in, and it would be in the evening, she would get a quarter bottle of vodka. And then it became a quarter in the morning, and a quarter in the evening. 
just a sort of, she works in the city, clearly worked for a bank or something like that. And then it became quarter and a half. And then it became quarter and a quarter and a half because she was getting on at lunchtime. And it just built, built, built until she was getting a bottle and a bottle. And, and I watched this happening in slow motion and I, over the months. And I just thought, oh, Christ almighty. So one day she came in. I just said, no, I, I can't serve you. I'm not going to be party to this. And she got down on her knees and she grabbed my, my, my trousers and she begged me in tears to serve her. And it was fucking horrific. And I just thought, oh, am I enabling people with serious problems? Is this my responsibility? And it was a real quandary about whether I was part of hurting people or not. And what I decided was that you can't affect that. You know, if people want to, or, or, or have, or do damage themselves and they can't even help it, you, you, you're, you're not part of that. I do think, for instance, having seen the damage that illegal drugs do, having from Manchester seen the effects of organised crime, I'm very against drugs. Having had a quite a good party dancey time at university and sampled the wares and then seen the other side working in that area and seen the horror, the real genuine horror that drugs create and the really unpleasant, violent, nasty, prostitute undercurrent. I just think that <laughs> this is somebody looking at me, oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, um, agree. Yeah. The the drugs are horrific. Um there you go. Oh, it's time for an edit. There is some information on here. And very rarely do I edit and I really hate editing, but um I can't say that stuff. Uh, it's about having a gun put to med. So I would like to mention though that organized crime really likes recreational drugs and I have smoked cannabis in my youth and I do not anymore for lots of reasons. One of them is that it props up organised crime. Uh, it's not some cute uh, hippie with a beanie hat who's a little bit tired who eats a lot of toast just sort of uh, doing you a favour. Uh, it's some scary people and it props up prostitution and burglaries and all kinds of bad things. Um, and I don't want to be patronising but it's something I'm very passionate about and I just thought I'd take the opportunity to bang you on the head with a plastic hammer about that. I'm also very, very interested in your opinion on this, uh, as with anything. So please do comment on the podcast or on Twitter, which is from Jacket or from Jacket.com or anywhere you like. And uh, let's crack on. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a massive question. I haven't given it much. Funny, I like to think I've given most things thought, but I haven't given the drugs question thought for a long time because I'm so removed from it. Um, well, I am too. I mean, I, I, I live in a sort of suburban splendour in Lewisham, and you know, I haven't been to a nightclub since, I think, like 2006. You know, I haven't stayed up beyond one in the morning, apart from just catch a flight or something, <laughs> you know, since about 2008. You know, it just, the whole wow. thing is, you know, it, it, it all seems like a long time ago. I went to... Um, one of the things I managed to put into this weekend in London, it's quite expensive and it's quite sort of distracting to go to London, is I did all this stuff and I went to a John Hopkins gig, I don't know if you know him, but it's kind of like a sort of intelligent techno, I believe is the phrase, or, or thinking electronic. Did you stroke your beard while you are dancing? I, I, I don't, but I do shuffle my feet a little bit. Um, it's berets and things. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think you might be behind the curve on the... Yeah. Um, um, and... Uh, and it's funny because as a 45-year-old man with a funny haircut, um, 
I kind of feel like I reasonably fit in, but I, I turned up at this gig and it was just so, it was quite edgy because I'd been to John Hopkins' gig a few years ago and it was one of, literally one of the greatest moments of my life. It was absolutely unbelievable. Like when I like art, I really like art and I get a bit funny. Um, and I came to this gig a second time and it's never going to be as good as the first time. But it was at Brixton Academy and it was downstairs and there was a lot of quite burly men um, looking at each other in burly ways, and I well, felt what, quite gay out of burly ways. Or? No, no, as in I, I might, I might be oh, lighty girly, fight. Well, well, yeah, maybe. I could, I couldn't tell, and I think in the past when I worked in Clubland, I would have been able to read the room very well. But I think I've lost that, which I'm not really sorry about. But I thought it was, um, uh, I thought it was edgy. Right. I thought it was edgy and druggy, and I realised. That I loved the music, but I didn't like the atmosphere, and so I just sort of removed myself and stood at the end, at the edge. I'll do that sometimes. I don't really care or mind if my friends sort of think, "Oh, okay." <laughs> He's and, and I just sort of had a little think, and I people watched again, and I just thought, "God, I used to do this stuff," you know, just sort of go a bit bonkers. And, and actually, I yeah, it's just very strange thinking myself sort of half a lifetime ago going absolutely batshit mental whereas now I can sort of enjoy it as almost like watching a looking at a portrait and just going oh, that's very nice <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a bit that's sad and obvious as a 45 year old man I don't know but um, I don't really care um, how are you finding your 40s well, I you don't look 40 by the way thank you you do look perpetually sort of early 30s uh, well, that, that's very kind. I sort of I look in the mirror and I sort of see I, I see photos of myself, and I just like my neck's getting a bit hodgy. Um, but I think having hair is a really great thing. You, Most you of do it, have good hair, uh, yeah. And having that covers a multitude of sins. So I, do you just for men? I, I, no, no, I don't dye digitally. I, I and, and I it, it is going grey. And I also get these amazing kind of. Um, like badger eyebrows <laughs> coming through where you just get this like huge thick white hair comes out but turning 40 actually I was going to have a party and I found the whole thing actually really sad I was sort of working as a freelance writer not earning very much money and sort of watching people who I thought weren't as good as me being a lot more successful and I thought, I, was actually, I actually was, was, was miserable for about a few months when I turned 14. And I decided not to have a party and I just went out for dinner with my parents. Didn't have a particularly good time. And, and then I just sort of got over it. You know, I, th I think a lot of peaks and troughs, some of them are to do with actual stuff going on, as you know. Yeah, had actual stuff. And sometimes it's just, I don't know what it is, it's just hormonal or moods or... And I just... Nothing had really changed, but then I was like, actually, I live in this nice flat, I live in a nice part of London, I have a wonderful wife, yeah. I have a daughter, I have a reasonably successful career as a writer, I've written a book that's won an award, you know, and I'm working on another book, and it was just like... Tell us about the book. I did a book called Empire of Booze, which is a sort of history of Britain told through, through drink, sort of gin and port and all those kind of things and that won a Fortman Mason award and yeah, yeah. and I got a royalty statement the other day um, with, with some actual you know a few hundred quid so that was nice and then a couple of weeks ago I had a book out called The Home Bar which is a big 
photographic book about recreating a swanky bar. And that was the thing I saw in the Telegraph. Yeah, yeah, it's just been serialised in the Telegraph. And I don't think, it, you know, and they gave me an advance for that, so that was nice. And I don't think it's going to be like a huge bestseller, but it was a very satisfying project to do. Great. Did it quite quickly. The publisher were very, very helpful and very um, efficient. And I'm very pleased with it. And I think I never thought I'd write one book and I've done two. Um, so I'm, you know, sort of modestly proud. Yeah, it should be. And, yeah. and, and nothing has really changed since then. I think I've just learned to count my blessings a bit more. I have this strange sort of, I still have this slightly dad attitude towards you because when you joined straight out of university when um, we uh, worked together, you, I can remember you were sort of wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and at the time I probably thought I was relatively wise and I was like, come on Henry, I'm going to show you the ways of the world. I can't believe how young I was then and I see photos from when I was that, but I look about 16. I was so skinny and I just really pale and I just I just looked like a waif and the idea that I was assist, assisting in running the shop and then advising people on what burgundy they should be buying just seems ludicrous if I came across myself now I'd just be like yeah right I think I'm going to go to the sensible shop across the road <laughs> no but you you were and are very charming and funny, which I think is half the, the battle. And it's just about confidence. It's, you know, there's no difference between a 21-year-old doing that stuff and somebody at 45, you know, jumping into an Oppins and learning it. You know, you can learn quite a lot about wine quite quickly. Yes, I think you can learn a... a... Yeah, I just didn't quite know how little I knew, though. I think which I... is great. Yeah. That's <laughs> very freeing, though, isn't it? It was very freeing. I think I look back now... And some of the sort of, you know, blithe advice I gave, I just kind of cringe. Because <laughs> I, I just couldn't do it now, because I'm so aware of how little I know. Whereas then I was like, burgundy, grapes, wine, it's made from grapes, it's really this nice. This one's an expensive one, it'll be good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can remember my first day of business, it was actually in Altrincham in Manchester, because I started there for a few months before I moved to London. Um, and um, i just looking at the wine and just going... Ah. And what I did was, because I'd been to France, as I just found a place like the Loire, and I would see Chinon and go, Chinon, I've heard of Chinon, I'll say Chinon, that is good. And that's a really lovely, heavy-bodied wine. Of course it's not. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and, and then you learn, you get caught out, because people will catch you out. They go, well, it's not a heavy-bodied wine, because I know more about wine than you do. You realise your customers are not stupid. And it's an important thing to learn, is that, you know, not to... Not to try and stiff people and bullshit people, and then it's a lot more fun because you believe in what you're doing. Um, and then you, I think the big early passion for wine was driven by fear, being caught out and making a fool of yourself. And then within six months, I actually really liked it. Once you're relatively good at something, like I suppose cycling or golf, or anything, once you're actually on the travelator, then it carries on. Um, but I always remember being very frustrated because of these incredible wines that we didn't have access to, these Bordeaux and Burgundies, and you'd have these emprimeurs. Can you explain emprimeurs? Most people probably don't know what it's just, it is. It's selling the wine before it's available. Bordeaux, though. You yeah, it's usually Bordeaux, but they do it with port, they do it with German wine. So it's like an auction, I guess. Yeah, well, no, it's, it's just a kind of, it's like a sort of vote of confidence in the wine before it's ready. So you think, I'm going to buy it at this lower price 
before it's quite ready, okay. because I think it's going to be great. And it's about the merchant trying it, and you try these samples of wine that isn't going to, isn't the finished wine. It's a barrel sample. And so it hasn't been properly aged, it hasn't but it's been much cheaper now or then <laughs> that, rather than when it's fully matured. It, that's the idea, it isn't okay. always. Um, okay, so so people we'd have this entrepreneur once a year, and these amazing, beautiful Bordeaux cases would turn up, and people would ask me what the best thing was, and I'd be like, I can't afford to try this stuff, I have no idea. And uh, and I saw this other world behind the curtain of these really incredible traditional wines, usually. French, sometimes Italian, Spanish. I'd just be like, <gasps> and then occasionally you'd have this sort of, you know, rich guy, and he'd just say, "Oh fuck it, you know, let's open a bottle," and he'd say, "Try this," and you'd try this incredible. Like my favourite, it's more of an accessible one is Chevy Champetain. Yeah, that's the one red wine I really, really miss. Is I can remember drinking Chevy Champetain a couple of times in Bordeaux, actually, up in Burgundy, and just thinking, "Oh my God!" You know, like, ah, um, really. This is this is a, so. I used to work with Chris Hoy, and the, the I used to joke about it must be the most boring question ever is, "What's it like to win a gold gold medal?" Really good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it was all right, <laughs> um, but um, but he was always very good at that. But but I've always thought as a wine merchant, what's your favourite ever wine? What is your favourite ever wine? I mean, that's a tough one. I think the wine that probably gives me the most pleasure is I love Tawny Port, which is port that's aged in wood, whereas the sort of the... the quite the soft. They tend to be soft, mellow, but really nice acidity. And they have this incredible sort of nutty flavour. Quite good value as well. Very good, very, very, I mean, very good value for, 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 for the quality. Um, and then you have these things called colletas, which are port from a single year, but aged in wood. Right. So the sort of classic port English people drink is vintage. So it's, it's not aged for very long. You put it in a bottle and you leave it for 30 years, 40 years. Wow. Any drinking. And it's, well, you have to keep it for a very long time. Who's got the time or the money? Whereas these are ports that are pre-aged, sold, ready to drink. I think they are, they taste as tobacco and walnuts and raspberries. And they're just phenomenal. And what I love about them is they take the kind of guesswork out of it. Whereas with your, you know, your, your Jeffrey Jean, it could be a bad year, a bad producer, not ready, too expensive. You know, it's... There's lots badly of bad, stored. badly stored. With a, if you buy a bottle of Fonseca, ten-year-old Tawny, Sandeman, twenty-year-old Tawny, it's going to be excellent. There's no right. pissing about. So I think that would be my kind of, you know, just want something delicious to drink. So, so it's interesting because I listen to film podcasts a lot, and that's my sort of great cultural passion, I suppose. But the with. Um, with that, I was asking what the ultimate wine tasting experience you've had, I suppose, was. Was the most incredible taste you've had? But that, I mean, that's great because if I wasn't coming here to do practical tips, but it is great that to use your knowledge. And yeah, I think I, I can totally see it. So I never really got into Tawny Port, but there are so many fantastic value wines. So, for instance, something that isn't great value is champagne. But actually, I can see the value. That's expensive stuff, but the amount of work that goes into champagne is fairly bonkers. But also, champagne has a very narrow band of expensiveness, beyond a few sort of outliers. So, like, the best Bordeaux you'll ever have 
is going to be like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pounds a bottle, like a bottle of sort of 61 um, Margot or something. Yeah. You know, it's going to be thousands and thousands of pounds. Whereas a bottle of Krug or something, which is going to be probably the best champagne you'll ever have, yeah. is, I don't know, 150 quid or something like that. Or you can get a bottle of really nice like vintage Bollinger for hundred pounds or something mm. like that. So you could, whereas the equivalent fully mature Bordeaux Burgundy is gonna be far more. So and sort I, of I think you've also got to educate your palate to an extent to really notice the difference between those sort of ultra expensive Bordeaux. Yeah, with with with, with, yeah, with, with expensive champagne. Like, this is amazing. You know, and it's I remember trying in fact when we were at Bobbins in Knightsbridge trying a Bollinger RD 1985, I think it was. I didn't know very much about champagne, but immediately I could tell this was the best champagne. I can still remember how amazing my my greatest one I've ever tried was still my fav- favourite, but I haven't drunk it in a long time. Is um, Bill Carcassonne, which was the kind of champagne brand of choice of Bobbins. And it's sort of well, it's like second tier of the well known sort of brands, Moet being at the top, and in terms of well knownness, not quality. But, but Bill Carl's, Billy Cart Salmon, I suppose you'd say it's Billy Cart Salmon, isn't it? <laughs> and the 1990, which was an incredible champagne. Oh, I, I remember, remember, that. remember that one, yeah, yeah. And I had a half bottle, so it'd been, it had been, it matured fast. And I, I can remember going to the Obbins Fine Wine in Battersea and getting a half bottle. Of Bill Carson Wine 1990 for my wife's 23rd, I think, birthday. And um, I got two glasses, some two flutes from Conrad Shop. And this was like the, the, the most opulent thing I could do. I was, it was so poor at the time, so fucking earning nine grand a year of bins. Uh, but I got a half bottle of this Bill Carson Wine and a couple of flutes. And I sat in uh, on Hampstead Heath, Damlu, and we had a little picnic, some hummus pizza or something and had this wine and we were just looking at each other going oh my god this is amazing you know like one of those moments where you look at each you know like and that's something I used to love about wine is when you try something and, and something new has happened to your brain you just go how how and that, that's quite rare and I haven't had many of those um, I've had another moment was having Torontes in Buenos Aires in Argentina oh, right. And I'd never really tried Torrances before, and like really fl- intense, like muscat, isn't it? It's like really floral, yeah, but just like spring flowers, not as rich and heavy as muscat. So I, now I'm self-conscious. Now I'm imagining people listening and going, "Oh my god!" I can't, be- I can't believe you said Torrances. <laughs> <laughs> but off. But, but in. When you start getting into wine, even though Obbins is very unpretentious, when you start talking about tobacco, tobacco smoke and leather and strawberries and rotten raspberries, all this kind of stuff. Rotten cheeses. Yeah. But, but it seems totally relevant. And it is totally relevant because once your ed- palate is educated, you get that stuff. Whereas when you're out on the outside and you're learning it, you think, what a load of wank. Yeah, well, I, I, I sort of try very hard to keep it unwanky, you know. But, but sometimes it's just like you you do have to try and put your flavours into words. And sometimes, you know, you, you're, you're going to have to try and be a bit poetic. You can't just do that. So you have to go off on a... I can't remember who it was. Someone sort of said that part of it is describing flavour. So part of it is like an elaborate compliment to the wine. 
Right. So it's partly poetry. you. Yeah, exactly. So partly it's you trying to sort of scientifically, and there's like certain compounds that are in tobacco that are also in a mature port. So so it works. But also part of it is is metaphor. You know, yeah. your 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 your. And, and there's almost a tradition. It's a bit like. French polishing or something like that is using those descriptions as part of the joy and the romance, I suppose, yeah. of it. But but if you try a really good Australian Cabernet, it does taste of eucalyptus. Yeah, eucalyptus. yeah. It really does. I can remember, you know, being educated by old bins going to wine tastings for staff and just going, oh my god, that really does taste of eucalyptus, or you know, etc. All these different things, and um, and it's it's. I, I just find it fascinating. It's a bit like, you know, I love making clothing and understanding that the value and the importance of doing stitching a certain way or cutting something a certain way is this isn't just flim-flam. It's not just show. These things actually work. They actually count. And so when people... I, I'm very quick to defend champagne because champagne... I, I became more of a specialist, specialist in champagne than other areas because my wife loved champagne so much and I used to hate it before I started, started Obbins. And then I think that Bill Cosmar moment was a real epiphany, and then I carried on from there. And people used to say, oh, Nick, you're you know, champagne, how can you defend it? It's so expensive, it's crazy. I go, but when you've seen a, you know, uh, the racks and the, the work that goes into it and the value you get from it, you know, the, the, the heart and soul that goes into a lot of these places. So, so when me and Emily earned decent money and we didn't have kids, we used to, every year we'd drive to Champagne and we'd buy 120 bottles of champagne. Fucking ludicrous. Start Island from? From a place, you should make note of this, because it's an amazing, it's a family-owned place, zero pub, publicity or marketing, but we went to the um, uh, tourist information place in Epinay, and there was a little tasting table out, and this lovely lady from Le Comte, L-E-C-O-M, T-E, yeah, I think. Um, uh, just sort of try a champagne, and it was one of those ones you go, oh my god, it's really Pinot um, Noir heavy, really rich, and um, we just went, um, okay, we, we want to come to your house and buy some champagne then. It was eight euros at the time, eight euros a pop. And uh, what was that? Six quid a bottle. So we, that's why we bought 120, and it lasted us for ages. It was a lady falling over. Um, I think she's a little bit merry. Um, yeah, she's very merry. Um, <laughs> the joy of booze. <laughs> if only the listener could could see. I, I enjoy. I did enjoy her very confused face as she fell over the concrete post. Perhaps I shouldn't have done that. Um, uh, I'm checking the battery as I always do, and say telling the listener about checking the battery. Um, so, what what next for you? I don't really know. I mean, I, I now have a day job which I haven't had for a long time. So I work for a um, online retailer, whiskey company. And I edit their blog, so you write stories. Got to say whom? They're called Master of Malt, and they're based in, in, in Kent, and they do a very good range of whiskies and brandies and things. And I edit their blog, so that's, it's really nice to have an income and have a team of people that I work with, having been sitting in my office for... Do you like working in a team? Depends on the team. <laughs> but but, but, but they, are, they are really nice people, and they're fun, and they're terribly young. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the old man of the office. I think the only older person is Dawn in accounts, so they're all kind of... 
bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and, you know... Very, are, you, very are, are you the wizard's chap who... I am very wiz- I'm very wizened, and then... And I, I'll sort of make jokes that just... Whoosh, completely <laughs> out of their heads. And, they, and then they'll make jokes that are... Um, do you want another beer, or...? Can I have another Darren? OK, I'll have another beer. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> And they made jokes that just... So there's a little bit of... I wouldn't say culture clash, but there's definitely... They're in their early 30s and late 20s. I'm in my early 40s. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a nice place to work. But next... I mean, I, I have other ideas for books. Which I'm sort of... Writing a book is an awful lot of work for very, very little money. And I'd imagine there's a very few people who really break through and make a lot of money from books. Exactly, yeah. And then the idea of putting together a book proposal, which is in itself a lot of work, and going to publishers and then them saying, don't want to do it. I, I, I sort of can't So until I have a brilliant idea or a publisher says to me, let's do this book, then I will, I think I probably won't do another book. But what I'd quite like to do is... I think Empire of Booze would be wonderful on the radio. Or yeah. on television. I think you'd be great on the radio, yeah. Well, yeah, not necessarily me, but I'd like to... No, no, I'd you, like, I'd you, like, well, OK, me. I think... I think <laughs> but maybe me on the radio. So I'd really like it to be turned into something else because it's, it's a fun story. There's lots of um, great characters. Um, so that's something that I'm on a very low level working on. Should we make it slightly higher level now, considering the massive reach of my podcast? Yeah, well, do, do you know, it, it was... I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this for stuff, but um, I I had people interested in turning it into a television series. What? So I would meet with producers, and they would sort of... I didn't really have a lot of experience of television people, but television people, when you meet them, you think... This is happening. The job's done, yes. and you never hear from them again. <laughs> so you'd meet these people, and they'd be like, "Yeah, we're going to go and see so and so from BBC Two, and this is like a sure thing." And and my wife, is, my parents are calling me, and I'm just going to hang up. Do you, do you um, get that? We can stop. No, 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 no. It's my, my parents. It can't be that urgent. <laughs> um, and if it was my wife, obviously, <laughs> I would answer. And then you'd never hear from them again. That happened so so many times. But in the end, I was just, you know, I'll leave it for a bit. But I'd like to, you know, I'd like to get something on the radio. But, but having experienced, I, I worked um, for a time with a, a TV company, a TV production company, and, um, that, and I would help them try and get in pitches, and the pitching process was really tough. So we'd desperately get in front of the head of so-and-so or Channel 4 or whatever, and everyone wants to do the same thing. And, you know, you see all this plethora of programmes and animation films and, and stuff on, on the TV and Netflix and everything, and you think, oh, my God, everyone's getting a, a piece. No way. It's like one in 50. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think it's probably less than that. But what was funny is that they would, I would come to them with my sort of thing about, you know, you know, we'll meet these wine producers and we'll go off to Jamaica and look around... Um, rum distilleries and they'd be like okay how about it's you and Lucy Worsley in a Morris Minor dressed up in Dickensian costume and you'd just be like okay I'll do it to get on telly (laughs) and then you'd get and you'd be putting together these proposals and I would start with this sort of you know this I don't know I suppose a sort of Simon Sharma-y type thing 
And then they would be like, right, yeah, but you need to go on a journey. So how about you're going around the city of London drinking pints of porter whilst carrying stuff? And I was just like, um, okay. And you kind of realise the, the sort of the narrative or the sort of grammar of documentaries can be quite stupid. And even on serious channels. Have you watched W1A, the comedy series? Well, exactly, yeah, yeah. That's, that's sort of how, that's what I thought of. I suppose W1A is mostly about the, the lunacy and the bureaucracy of, um, of corporations and media companies. And, I mean, my wife and I, who both work to media in London, look at that and we just go, yeah, it's a documentary. It's not a comedy programme. It, it's all true, like, especially the PR firm, because you worked in PR, yeah. and I sort of PR film companies but not as a PR person just did some but it is true that you know some of I, I generally found that sort of the advertising world the media world was split into two groups of people really really nice sweet people who were desperately trying to ignore the fact that most of what they did was utter bollocks and I'm not saying what I do is utter bollocks but you, you've got to do yeah, something you make, you make jackets you know it, it's quite you know they keep, keep them dry. They look yeah, stylish. It doesn't say people's lives. And then the well, other half, if you're on a mountain, don't give a flying fuck whether it's bollocks or not. It's just making money and getting power. And you have this constant sort of tension between bad people and good good people, which is essentially life. So I don't know where I'm going with that. But, but you know, sometimes you would come across a particular group, intense group of bad people, and you'd just be like, oh, no, I'm going to have to work with them for three months. And, you know, they would... Um, they would use um, an extraordinary amount of, uh, of bullshit. Um, what's the uh, the phrase? You know, the, all this nomenclature and the jargon to to just justify the position and you know to to disempower you because they'd say this thing and you go, sorry, what 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 what's that? And uh, I can remember being accused of it myself because I I, I was in a meeting, a pre-production meeting, which is like the thing before the whole thing kicks off, and I talked about the DP and somebody said. Don't, don't try and make me feel small with your jargon. I went, oh, it's director of photography, like everyone says it. And then I thought, oh God, do they? Oh, I'm not being one of them, am I? Um, but uh, but the, the media world sometimes does take itself extremely seriously. And uh, But it's a problem if you're one of the people who doesn't take it seriously. Because then you think, oh, but does it matter? Oh no. Existential crisis. Well, I think that was my kind of my problem when I worked in publishing. Is I think people knew that I wasn't. I didn't need to. I sort of. I suppose I had this sort of perspective like it's only publishing. But then, of course, for people who work in publishing, far from me, it's not only publishing. It's their careers. It's their livelihoods. And you've got to take it really seriously. Whereas I had this sort of detached view, which I can see now. There was a sort of smart aleck thing about it. Whereas I right. sort of thought. Whereas everyone else was a bit like. Okay, you know these books might not be the best books in the world, but there are books, and we're going to fucking sell them as well as we can. Yeah. Whereas I'd just be a bit like, they're all a bit crap, aren't they? And I sort of look back now and sort of think, I probably couldn't have done it any other way. But at the same time, I can see why I didn't, I wasn't more successful. <laughs> um, so I'm going to stop there. I think that I'm, what I'm really interested in is I've seen you. So you five years ago, we had a quick catch-up then. That was the beginning of Volpine. Before that, I hadn't seen you for a very long time. But what I'm really pleased about, again, it sounds a bit dad, though, is when I met you, I knew immediately that you were a very talented, charismatic and interesting chap. That's compliments, sorry. That's OK. No, You're not I, allowed I, to take compliments. It's always, no, no, I love a compliment. Oh, 
bugger. Um, and I'm really pleased that um, I think it's really coming out, and you're a great writer, and um, it seems to be burgeoning, and uh, I'm really pleased you're getting a book deal. So I'm really glad that I've, I've met someone who was, who was lovely and ended up really making something out of that. So it's great. Um, probably get do with getting paid a bit more money and having a few more well, I mean that's, that's that's the dream isn't it but I think I'd rather do something I'd really love and not earn very much than do something I hate and earn a lot I'm sort of I'm still fighting with that because part of me thinks god I should have gone to the city and become a wanker but actually <laughs> I, I'm actually quite content well that's killed a small segment of the audience <laughs> um so, uh, but you also do get paid in, in beer and wine, um, sitting in a nice bar in Mayfair, surrounded by smelly cheese. Yes, I, I did wonder what the smell was. I was like, has Nick not changed his trousers from it? And then I was like, oh no, it's the smelly cheese. <laughs> I, I really like cheese. Maybe I have some cheese. So, so I, uh, long-term listeners, not that I've done that many podcasts, but will understand that I have annoying eating habits. And one of the things I discovered, because... At first, they give you very extreme advice. So it was that I can eat aged cheese, which is amazing. But they tell you at first, and you can't do, eat all this stuff. And you get this list. I'm sorry, you can't eat these things anymore. It's quite devastating, especially if you're really into tastes and stuff. Uh, having been a wine merchant, and then slowly but surely, you realise you can sort of bend the rules. And one of them is I can eat really aged cheese because lactose doesn't exist in aged cheese. Oh, no, it doesn't. Yeah. Um, and uh, that makes me very happy because I like cheese quite a lot. But it still means that I can't eat asparagus or avocados, and I like them. That's that's sad. Yeah, it is quite sad. But I think it's something in life that we all we all have terrible crosses to bear, and I think it's something I've managed to get get through. You're thriving. You look like you're thriving on it. Thank you. But you know, I th- I feel I feel like that's come to a dead end. That one. Oh right. Well, I thought I thought we were we were winding down anyway. <laughs> we were winding so, down. So you, but, you, so you bring my, up bring up the cheese, and then it you know. It and then the rules, hilarity. Rules. Yeah. I felt I felt like I just don't want to say goodbye. Right. But I think the hilarity of the food based items just stopped. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm very lucky that I can eat the moment touch wood. Almost. Almost. Just stop it there. Hey, stop it there. It's um, been great fun. So I found it quite hard to say find the words to say goodbye to listeners. And it always make a hash of it. Would you like to say bye for once? Yeah, I'll say thank you very much for listening and tune in next week, next month. Next One year. of them. Yeah. Dunno. Goodbye. Thanks. Bye. So that chat was against the backdrop of Henry going through something that I think a lot of us would find very, very difficult to cope with, having cancer and chemotherapy. Um, that was a fair while ago, I found out, and you never would have been able to tell, and not necessarily that you should or would, but um, I just think it's always framed, always framed against, you know, Henry looks like he lives the life of Riley, running around, drinking loads of booze, he's quite posh, you think he's very well off, and you sort of get a context which he's very happy to share, that he's not particularly well off, he's certainly not poor, um, and that he has actually had some shit which he didn't feel he had to mention or justify himself with. Um, he's just getting on with this thing, and I find that quite inspiring, really. Um, so I hope it helped. Uh, please do comment. There's some mildly controversial stuff in there. Very interested to hear your opinions. It's very important to hear different opinions, as I realise I'm just pottering about the house changing the acoustics. Um, if you would like to visit the place where the jackets, what I design, is, it is fromjacket.com. You can always sense my discomfort. I'm very bad at selling my own stuff, even though I'm very, very proud of it. 
You can also comment on Front Jacket on social media, or you can just shout into the ether, which can help as well. Thank you very much. Do follow and do rate. Um, that's a thing in podcasts which seems to help, and everyone says it, so I'm going to say it too. And um, it was uh, lovely being with you, and I can't say bye-bye, but I have to. Um, I really do. Bye. Bye.